0: get wrong. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that a man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we have been in this series for a while. We're not done yet, but now we have turned our attention towards really one thing. We're focusing on primarily what separates our style of church, and we call it that, versus churches around the world, is is the belief that God still heals today. And not that he heals, because there are a lot of people who say, well, certainly God does heal, or can heal. The question is, will he? Now imagine, because in the same breath, you'll say, well, God does save, and he can save, but will he? Nobody would ever make that statement. But yet, we do something different when it comes to the area of healing, and really when it comes down to and we are laying the foundation for all of this. Is what do we think about what God's word is? You see, when, as we've gone through this, we are focused on primarily one thing: what is your thought on this? Now, ultimately, your belief in it is irrelevant, because your belief in it or lack thereof is not making true, not true, anything like that. It is really in the source itself. What is the character of God? Does God keep His promises? If God gave you a guarantee. Or your money back? Sorry. If he gave you a guarantee, are you trusting in that guarantee? And does anybody get nervous flying? Anybody besides me? Okay. Now I used to have no fear of flying whatsoever, and I don't really now. But there's something about when you get up, say, what is it? 30,000 feet they fly at, which is really high. And that airplane is really heavy. And from all experience that I have, heavy things stay on the ground. Okay? And I get up there, and I begin to think about all the bad that could go wrong. Like the wing falls off. That would be bad. Like the engines stop working. That would be bad. The pilot jumps out of the airplane. Again, that would be bad. All of these things that go through my head initially, because I don't fly very often, so every time I get up there, I'm like, you know... I haven't died yet. Probably about to. And so, all of these things are going through my head. And when you get somebody who's a pilot, they completely think different. I'm going fly with Terry. Terry's down here today. He's got his own little airplane. And we went up in the air. And here's what I learned about little airplanes. Okay? They're little. You think, oh, it's less weight. Maybe it flies different. No, they're little. And by being little, the bumps... For real. <laughs> and I'm over there holding on for dear life, and he's like, Hey, you might want to hang on. The turbulence might start to get bad. I'm like, did he start to get bad? <laughs> like, he didn't even phase him. And then as we began to make a turn, you could feel the wind blowing the airplane sideways. <laughs> I'm starting to sweat. <laughs> Terry's cool as a cucumber. Don't even phase him. And I'm like, Terry, you understand, in a plane this size, That if any one of these clouds that you're going through sneezes, we're all done. He's like, oh, he's like, yeah, I'm going to take it up higher. It'll be easier up there. And I'm like, take it down lower, but very slowly. (laughs) Let's not land too quickly. And it was just this difference in he is completely confident in his abilities. He's also completely confident in the equipment. And I am not confident in any of them. Because I'm not. (laughs) And you see, that's how we treat Scripture, is our confidence grows in what God has promised the more we put trust in the promises of God. Does that make sense? Because that is essentially what this is. These are a series of writings by written to individuals where they're beginning to talk about the character and nature of God and how he has fulfilled his promises. That is where we lie on everything. We rely completely on the testimony that is inside of this about who God is, what God does, and how God performs. So the old saying that God works in mysterious ways, please forget that, erase it from your memory. That is not how God works because we are never going to sit here and question like, I don't know how God is going to perform in this situation. We have a record of how he's performed time and time again. And it all goes back to prophecy, and this is where we've been looking at here lately. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Pursue, love, and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless, indeed, he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, this is primarily talking about inside of a church gathering, but we see what prophecy is. It brings edification, exhortation, and comfort. Those three things is really what we're focused on, because what do they mean? Well, to edify means that we're building, or is the act of building. Exhorting means we're advising strongly, we're urging. Comforting means encouragement or consoling. And it's not in the words. It's in the one who gave the words. See, that's the difference. It's, I don't trust things based off of what I necessarily see. It's in who made them. You know, if you give me the option, let's say that I needed a pacemaker. And I have a choice from one made in America. By some of the best engineers and the smartest people on the planet. I'm not sure that they live in America, but let's just pretend that they do. Or, I've got one that was built in the back shed of somebody in Ethiopia. I have a lot more faith in the source of this one. That's kind of a dumb analogy, but I'm good at those. You see, it comes back to this. What is the comforting part, the edifying part, the exhorting part? It is the fact that God himself has spoken these things. And if that is true, then we should have no doubt in our mind. When the enemy comes up, it's like, did he really say, don't eat of the fruit of that tree? We can say, that's absolutely what he said. You see, we're, we're getting back to the basics of this. This has just become complicated because we've made it such, but this is not complicated. We don't have to worry about how God's going to respond. We can have confidence knowing how he will respond in every situation. If somebody says, I want to give my life to Christ, we're not going to sit there and second guess and say, well, I don't know if God's going to save them or not. We have no problem with anything else we pray for around the fence. We don't know. We question it. We question everything in turn, every chance we get. And so what if we just got back to this? What would our world look like if we got back to this? So what I began to show you is by we looking at the prophecy of what God has said and how he has fulfilled them, every promise is for us today, is a guarantee. It is backed by God. Do you realize now that the currency that we have today is backed by nothing? It is not backed by gold, it is not backed by silver, it is not backed by anything to say, yep, this is it, it's simply backed by the word that the United States says, yeah, we'll cover that that sound like maybe something that could go wrong at some point in time? You ever loan money to a relative? like, don't worry. It's 20 bucks. I'll get you Friday. And what happens come Friday? Where are they at? You see, it's it's backed by something. And the world accepts that. It because up until this point, it's still going. I'm not saying it's going away. Is that the United States has proven itself faithful. That you can trust it. But why don't we take that same expectation of God. God's promises, God's word. And so here's what we're talking about. I've read this and I'm going to read it again. I believe that God keeps his promises. I believe those promises are clearly laid out in his word. I believe that God still heals today and I believe that it is God's will to heal everyone. I believe that God's will to heal everyone was ratified on the cross. I believe that God guaranteed his will in healing through the atonement. I believe that sickness is the result of sin because death is the result of sin. I believe that sickness is nothing more than slow death. I believe that sickness is nothing more than an attack from the enemy. I believe that the church today has accepted sickness as a societal norm. I believe the church today has lost the foundation of God's promises. I believe the church today no longer believes the words of God. And I believe the church today is good at making excuses when things don't happen the way they think they are. And I'll, I'll keep saying it because this is where we are. We've got to look in the mirror and just be honest with ourselves. Because your behavior truly shows what you believe. Your words can be flowery and sound good and all of that, but your behavior really, truly, believe or shows what you believe. Well, in premise, I trusted Terry to not kill me in an airplane that day. Had I never gotten on the plane, it would have shown primarily. I don't really trust him or the plane, something. But I got on there. I lived to tell about it. I haven't got back on since. <laughs> Unsure if I ever was. Because you know, if you drive, you may die head on, but you don't land on it. just feels different. So that's the problem we have, is we talk a big game in the church today, the charismatic world. We talk this big game, but we don't practice it at all. We don't walk around with the expectation, yes, God heals the day, does it through the laying on of hands of his ministers, and when I say ministers, that's all of us. So let me pray for you. What do we do? Oh, boy, I hear you that can't. I'll, I'll pray for you. We'll see what God does. That's how we act. But is that what God's word says? That's what we're getting to. So we're going to begin to look at these prophecies. Primarily here Hebrews 10, verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here's the ultimate question. Is God faithful? Everybody says yes. But do we believe it? If we believe it, then we'll have no doubt on any promise that God has made that rightfully belongs to us and how we should act on it. So last week as we began to get into this end of it, this is the last portion of this series that we're going to do. We began to look at the idea of prophecy. Prophecy coming from the words of man is irrelevant if the source is not in God. So you can say something, but that doesn't make it so. But if God has said it, then you can take it to the bank. And we looked at this concept of what's called progressive revelation. And what we did is we took the idea of the Lamb of God And we traced that premise all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And we watched it step by step as the revelation of the Lamb of God progressively got more clear. How we see the need for a sacrifice of sorts. There's a seed war going on in Genesis 3. And then we see the Lamb being used for the first time in the Passover. And how the application of the blood is what truly kept them from the judgment that was to befall them. And then you get into Isaiah 53, where you see, okay, this lamb is actually a person. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now that lamb has a name. And we see the result of the giving and the shedding of that blood, and how Jesus becomes a high priest, greater than all other high priests. Because he wasn't based off his lineage, it was based off his calling that God has called him to be that great high priest. And we see the the work that he had done all the way to that, the Lamb gets to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. That is a progressive revelation. We can look back at all the fulfilled prophecy, we're going to look at some of that today, and be like, well yeah, of course, that's what it is. But when you're in the moment, you may not realize it, and by time passing, it becomes more and more clear. Now, we are in the Christmas season, and with the Christmas season comes all sorts of fanciful stories, and I am not talking about necessarily Santa or anything like that. But in the church, we have all of these these preconceived notions that we just kept for years, and we never asked the question, is that what happened? Because here's what I'm telling you. The birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy, but not just the fulfillment of prophecy spoken, but of patterns, evidence, through time. This week, I'm going to show you how we can look at the prophecies about Jesus himself by the words spoken and watch their fulfillment and how they are looked upon in the New Testament. Next week, I won't talk about this at all because the kids are doing their thing, but the week after that is going to be really good. So don't skip that. Because I'm going to show you stuff that's hidden inside the text that God has been laying the foundation of that only makes sense when you get back into a first century Jewish mindset. And when you see that, it'll blow your mind, because the patterns that they have developed for hundreds of years, if not more, is an exact fulfillment of what Jesus came to do. It's incredible when you begin to see this and how God laid the foundation for all of this to start. And we are laying a foundation today. So let's talk about this. Here's a big word. You ready? Messianic prophecy. What does that mean? Messianic prophecy. Well, in short, it is prophesied prophesying about the Messiah. That's all it is. Now, we we got to understand what Messiah is. Because we just use the term Jesus, but for a Jewish person, Messiah is the one coming from God. You've got to remember how they thought, especially at the time of Christ. They thought that Israel itself had become that suffering servant of Isaiah 53 because of all the turmoil that they had been in through all the years. And the reason they thought that is because surely by now God has sinned, and God is going to restore. Has there ever been a doctrine inside of the church that has been deeply held, and as a result of, well, our experience says this, so this must be true. Let me give you an example of one. Prior to Israel becoming a nation once again, every prophecy expert out there had thought that the land was completely irrelevant to the fulfillment, and Jesus returned. And then as soon as that happens, first time in human history, a nation dispersed, comes back and becomes a nation once again, suddenly it's like, oh my goodness, that was a marker!" But for hundreds of years, that had been completely tossed out. And we could go time by time and look at all sorts of different ones, but it was a big deal. So it completely changed the way they thought about it. You know why? Because every generation wants to be the generation that is raptured, that Jesus returns in. So we start looking for signs that we can twist and make them fit, our narrative. I've heard more in the last 12 months about how this is the time where Jesus is going to return because of look at what is happening in our country. And I look at them and I said, do you realize what's happening in our country has been happening around the world for decades and millennia? I mean, we have had it. We're soft. You know what the greatest crisis in America is right now, right this moment? It is not Corona. They've run out of Charmin. <laughs> I mean, there are bikes happening in Walmart over toilet paper. Did you ever think that you would see that in this country? No, you didn't. This is where we are, folks. That's how soft we are. Around the world, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. But well, you might have to use off-brand toilet paper. It's a real shame. But you know what? Every great man of God has had to suffer for the gospel of Libya. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. You see, when they looked at prophecy, they don't look at just prediction fulfillment. They look at patterns of which God moves. So the idea that Messiah was going to come and die had been eliminated because of everything they gone through, and surely he would have come by now. That's why you see them constantly talking to Jesus. Jesus are going to set up the kingdom Is now the time? He says. Shut up about that. Leave me alone. with bugging. He's not any All the times. He's like, okay, but, but if you set it up soon, like, can I sit at your right hand and can I sit at your left hand? You know, they're politicking for position because they were thinking, all okay, right, any day now. And what did Jesus say? Hey, don't worry. I'm going to die. So don't worry about the kingdom part. But three days later, I'm going to come back. Did any of them believe it? No, they didn't. Everything that they saw and experienced, how Jesus said, oh, yeah, you see these 5,000 people? Yeah, bring me what you got. We're going to feed them. And watch that. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm coming back. If they had truly believed that, they'd have been standing at the tomb three days later. They didn't believe it. And that's where we are today, is we don't believe the words of God. So let's look at this. The reason that we look at at, uh, prophecy, and the reason that prophecy is there is it's a confirmation that God is who he says he is, that his promises are true, and that he keeps all of them. And there are still promises yet to be fulfilled. And when it came to Messiah, there were a number of things that were given about the Messiah: what he would do, where he would come from, the way he would behave—that they were looking for. And so, one of those is the idea that he is the Son of God. Now, they believed in the triunity of God in, in, in Hebrews. Now, some will tell you that they didn't—that uh, they were, you know, this whole idea didn't come on the scene until Jesus was there. That is not correct. That is modern belief, but that is not correct. However, thinking of him as father and son necessarily wasn't in their vocabulary. And so the fact that he'd be the son of God, you see this spoken in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. It says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this is just a random song. doesn't tell us a whole lot. There's a lot more to the context of it. But we watch it be used in the New Testament and how they thought of it. Now look at Acts chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 26. It says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up to him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this uh, for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus. As it also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten. So he's giving us the understanding of what was going on, that this was talking about Jesus, that I have chosen you. He raised him up. He's fulfilled that promise, that he is the Son of God. What was the marker that this is the Son of God? In Acts, they're telling us, Luke is writing this, that it is the fact that he was raised from the dead. This is the Son of God. So then you go from the name of the Son of God, this one, the Son of Man. Now, it seems like there'd be a distinction there, but this is something that is a title. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I was watching in the night vision, behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, the One, which shall not be destroyed." Now, Daniel is looking towards the end times. He's seeing prophecy. He's seeing a vision here. God is showing him. But then we see this title used throughout the New Testament. Now, let me show you just a couple of these out of primarily the book of Matthew. In fact, only the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, it says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think people in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. So we see that name. One like the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Here we see the name Son of Man given. So what does that tell us? There's at least a possibility that what Daniel saw was Jesus himself. You see, this is why it is capitalized in your Old Testament. Is because we have seen the fulfillment of this in the writings. That's not the only place. Let's go to Matthew 12, verse 6. It says, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord, even on the Sabbath. So again, you see this. Who is he referencing? He's referencing himself. Job down to verse 31. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven me, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So who's the Son of Man? It's Jesus. One more, down in verse 39. I said one more, I lied. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now who are we talking about? It's still Jesus. One more, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So just in case you didn't put the parts together, he just told you who he's referencing. So when this was spoken by Daniel, did they realize in that moment that, oh, is it referencing Messiah? And the answer is, maybe. We don't know. But we certainly know how Jesus utilized. So we know that this is a reference back to him. This title would be the Son of Man. Why did he have to be the Son of God and the Son of Man? That's weird. Can you be both? Well, this comes to the next part His incarnation. That's a fancy word, it means Him coming in the flesh. You see, this idea is that He was going to be born a man, comes from Psalm 40. Verse 6, it says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened, burnt offering a sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. i delight to do your will, oh my God, and your law is within my heart. Here he says, I come. Now that's interesting, because when you break this down in the Hebrew, you begin to see That this is not talking about, oh, I'm just here, I'm a vision, I'm something like that. He is flesh and blood. And there are a whole myriad of other verses that you can go to. for the sake of time. I'm not going to do that because a lot of us already know most of these. We've heard these before. But we're looking at the idea of how God is building upon this idea of Messiah coming. We saw the Lamb of God last week. Now we're seeing Messiah coming as the Son of God and the Son of Man in the flesh. Well, how do we know who he is? Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for. me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written to me to do your will, O God. So we kind of see this being laid out by the writer of Hebrews. Verse 8 he said, previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin he did not desire nor had pleasure with them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second by that will. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So, again, we're watching this thing take place. The Son of God, the Son of Man, why did he have to come in the flesh? Because God said he did. Because it requires a sacrifice. You know what you can't sacrifice? Spiritual beings. There is no blood. There has to be the giving of blood. So now he's going to come in. But can't he be the son of God and the son of man when he is born in through natural means? Well, that's where the idea of the virgin birth comes from. Now, this is what's crazy to me. We have no problem believing in a virgin birth. Well, we have a problem believing all the other things that God has promised. Do you find that odd at all? If your daughter came to you and said, turns out I'm pregnant, but I swear, you would not believe her for a second. Right? I hope. And yet we have no problem accepting this, but we question everything else. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13, he said. Then he said, Here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, some have tried to twist this. The virgin just means young daughter. That is not what it is talking about. He said, The Lord's going to give you a sign. And what is the sign of Messiah coming? Born of a virgin. Now Here's where it's interesting. They're still waiting for Messiah today, the Jewish people are. You know what one of the litmus tests is not? Because they think, they, they, as of right now, they think the guy's on the planet. They think he's living, they've got it named, and all that stuff. They have to release that. This is what I've been told. Did they go back and say, who's your mom? And how did you get here? They don't. Because it can't work any other way. So, when we see this, the sign of them is that it would be coming from a virgin. Well, of course, we see this fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, and I think we all know what that means, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. From their sins, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, "Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us." God with He is now tabernacling among His people. So we see the fulfillment of this in Mary. Right now, during the time of Isaiah, did they have any idea when, who, exactly, how? No, they didn't. And after this moment, did everybody? I mean, did Joseph believe Mary? No, he didn't believe Mary. What did it take? An angel? No, for real. That's what happened. Because he's not an idiot. He, wouldn't, he would, of course, question that. But he didn't want to make her an example. But back then, things did not end well if you went this route. So he takes her. The sign was there. So the fact that this baby is born by a virgin was all the sign that the Israelites needed that this could be a sign. We'll get more in-depth into what they were looking for in the weeks to come. But here's the next one. You've got the Son of God and you've got the Son of Man who has to come in the flesh. And he's going to come via a virgin, which is a big deal. But you know the one thing that you have absolutely no control. If you were to say, I am going to prophesy something and then I have the uh, ability to manipulate the, the data to fulfill it in my own power that makes sense? In other words, I'm going to declare something, and I'm going to make sure it happens. Like, if I were to prophesy and say, Alma, you can reach into your purse, and you'll find a crisp, $100 bill. You know how I could fulfill that? I take that dollar bill out of Stan's wallet, and I stick it in Alma's purse. That's how you do it. Stan just reached down for his wallet. Five. It's my back there. But I can manipulate the facts. I can manipulate that and make it happen. You ever done magic tricks? Do you know they're not real magic? Look over here while this hand's doing something else, right? It's crazy how it works. It bothers me when I fall for it. But you know what you can control? Where you're born. You have no say. You can control where you die. You might even be able to control the means in which you die. You have zero control over where you're born. Trust me born in Detroit. I didn't think of that. He was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, this is such a big deal because look at what we're seeing, the prophecy in the flesh by a virgin and where he's born. And Micah five, two says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, who's going forth from old, from everlasting. Ruler of Israel. See that term? That's important because that's what they're looking for. So, again, how do you fulfill it? Well, we see in Matthew chapter 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, uh, of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship. Why did they call king of the Jews? Because they're looking for the ruler of Israel. When Herod the king had heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And he gathered all the chief priests and scribes and the people together. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we see this whole idea of Bethlehem. Again, Jesus can't make this happen. But even if he had some way to control where he was born, he can't make his mama a virgin. In John chapter 7, verse 40, he says, Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard the saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Why are they questioning it? Because they knew where Messiah was supposed to come from. And where did Jesus come from in their minds? Galilee. That's why most people think I'm from Nebraska. No, I'm actually from Detroit. (laughs) I escaped at a very early age. But again, we see the fulfillment of this. There are things that God had laid out ahead of time. All of these were markers putting the pieces together. There's no singular piece of evidence that said, okay, this could be the Messiah. It has to be all of them. If any one of them are found short, none of it works. So from Bethlehem comes that, but he also has to be of the lineage of Judah. Okay? In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? But the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a law giver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, Shiloh meaning Messiah. That is exactly what they were waiting for. And so we see this idea that it is going to come from the lineage of Judah, one of the 12 tribes. And Luke chapter 3, verse 23 says, now Jesus said, Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthew, the son of Levi, before I go any further, just understand that these are probably not the proper pronunciations of any of these names, the son of Melchi, the son of Jannah the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai the son of Maith, the son of Mattathia, the son of Sime, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shelathiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kozum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Aaron, the son of Hosea. How about that one? The son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathathath, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Menon, the son of Mathathathath, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezra, the son of Paris, the son of Judah. Finally, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarah, the son of Ruth, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shalah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxon, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Whew! I don't think I did half that. And the fact that none of y'all can pronounce them either, you can't judge me on it. So, now, as you learned Wednesday night in looking at Genesis 5, that these things are not here abstractly. Every one of these lineages is there for a purpose. But what does he do? He shows the lineage that he had come from the tribe of Judah, which is the son of Jacob. And Jacob is another name for Israel. But he takes it a step further. Is Not only is he the son of Judah, but he also, at the last part there in verse 38, that he is the son of Adam. But he's also the son of God. He predated Adam. Luke confirming all the parts believed. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14, it says, It is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke, nothing concerning priesthood. Where did the priests come from? He's making a case about the high priest here. They came from the Levites, and most importantly, the high priest came from the line of Aaron. So you had to be a Levite, but you had to be a son of Aaron even more so. And he's making the case that they came from Judah. What do we know about Judah? had nothing to do with priesthood. And so he's showing them in Hebrews chapter 7, but even more so in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So we see this lineage. No, can you control your lineage? No. Or you might change some of it. Right? It's kind of like your family now. There are some that you might keep, and some you might trade in for a newer model. You know, it's no different. So here we're watching all the pieces come into play about how Jesus is the fulfillment of Messiah. But not only did he have to be of the line of Judah, more specifically, he had to come from the line of David. Did you know that Judah had children that went on a different direction? Just in case you didn't. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Yep, David's father. And a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his ways. So from the stem of Jesse a branch will grow out. In Second Samuel chapter seven verse twelve says, "When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, speaking to David, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." So again, we're watching, this is the promise of the Davidic covenant, that somebody from David's line will sit on the throne of Jerusalem, ultimately uh, factoring in Jesus, who will do that and has yet to do that, thus he must return in order to do that. But we watch this fulfilled in Matthew chapter 22 verse 41, it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, who, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well he's the son of David. And he said to them, how does David in the spirit call him the Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. And then David calls him, Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from the day that, uh, that day on, did anyone dare question him anymore. So he's using their beliefs against the Scripture. You say, answer me this. What's he using? He's using the word logically. You see, they had adopted this belief that perhaps David was speaking of himself that is why Jesus responds the way that he does. The reason they believe that is because somebody probably came up with this idea, this half-talked idea, well, nothing else makes sense. This must be talking about himself. And as soon as he did that, they could not ask him any more questions. They didn't dare to question them. Probably smart on their part. So we're watching all these pieces come together. And all of these things being fulfilled. But it goes even further than this. Because at the moment of his birth, there's two things that are taking place. Herod makes a decree that all the newborn babies must be killed. And as a result of that decree, Joseph heads off to Egypt. You see this prophesied in Hosea 11. 1. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, who is Israel? Israel was a person, but ultimately was a nation. It says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is the prophecy. Well, who do we know he's talking about? Well, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother to flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you the word, for Herod to seek the young child and destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, did Joseph set out to do this? No. Did he sit there and he's thinking after Jesus is born, he's like, oh, we got Hosea to deal with? Okay. We're going to move to Egypt for a few years. No, there was a reason for it. That reason was being the death of all the two-year-old and younger babies by Herod. I'll get into more in depth in that in a couple weeks. But in Jeremiah 31, verse 15, it says, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, for refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That is so random. But who is Rachel? She's married to who? Jacob. Also known as Israel. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 says that Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all his district, from two years old and under, according to the time which they determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation weeping great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What do we see? Why do they go take painstaking time as they're writing their first-hand experience to show the fulfillment of the prophecies in the old? It's because they're building a case not just that a Messiah will come, but that he had come and he had been named. Why did John look at Jesus and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Because he make peace, and he's making a declaration that the Passover Lamb is standing before you. You see, it's the fulfillment of these promises that God has made, which gives these New Testament writers, these Gospel writers specifically, the boldness to lay down their life for what they believe, because they watched Jesus be sacrificed. And then they watched him come back. And while they may not have believed in the interim, there was no doubting what they saw with their own eyes. It completely revolutionized the way they thought, the way they processed stuff. It says later they've got open up their understanding of the scriptures. And suddenly they're seeing all things being fulfilled by Jesus. They're looking at this like, how can you not understand this? And that's where a lot of us are today. How can you not understand this? But we always look in the Old Testament what was the event that God always used as an analogy to show them that he always kept his promises. As I took you by the hand and led you out of Egypt. He references that dozens of times. Just like as I took you by the hand and I led you out of Egypt so you can trust me now. What is it in the New Testament? Just as Jesus lied three days in the grave and I brought him back. And Peter says that your faith and hope and trust can be in God. We are putting our faith in a God who raised his son from the dead. In event that we were not there to witness. But we have the writings of those who were. We watched the change in their life that took place. And from that moment on they never doubted God again. And that's where we need to be. And as we look at this we have to understand. Is that if God has fulfilled all of those promises. Suddenly why are there so many gaps being left out? Where's our faith? We often say that if we had been there at the time of Christ, well, we would have never shouted. We would have noticed it right away. No, you wouldn't. Because if you can't believe this, then you wouldn't believe that either. This is nothing but documentation of the, of the character and promises of God and how He's fulfilled them. There are many yet to come. Where we are today, we're, we're looking forward to the idea of healing, primarily. Right there. there is a guarantee in that. That we don't have to walk around scared of a virus or scared of anything, because no matter at the end of the day what happens, if you're right with God, then you're going to be with God, be to put the bodies, and be present with the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. But on this earth, there is promises that He has made, and we walk around and we're like, I, think we that one. I don't know. We're going to dig into this deeper over the next few weeks, just primarily talking about the Christmas story, the fulfillment. You see, Scripture verse. And fulfillment prophecy fulfillment right now we're going to over the next few weeks going to look at patterns the patterns that were developed and how they're fulfilled this is hidden underneath the text because you'll miss the nuances because most of us don't know the history that was going on there and also all the things that lined up to bring the moments that we just read about to fruition and when you see that your mind will be completely blown because you're going to look at this and like look at all the painstaking work that god did behind the scenes to get to the fulfillment of the promise of Messiah. And if that's true, and you're waiting on a promise from God today, what is going on between the, behind the scenes that God is setting things up and putting the chess pieces in place to fulfill that promise? It's not this. It's who's giving the promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that every promise is true. That we can count on everything that you have ever spoken. And if you have said it, it will happen. And Lord, I thank you that as we continue to grow in our understanding of who you are and what you've done, that we will grow in our boldness and our faith in what you uh, have promised, Lord. That all things are yes and amen to him who believe, Lord, that we will take your word as it is. And Lord, we will never doubt it again. As we continue to push forward in this, I thank you that you are softening our hearts and opening our minds to see things in a way perhaps we never have. Lord, that we take off these lenses of presuppositions, Lord, and we just look at your word for what it is. How you designed it. How you have kept it. How you have structured every part of it, Lord, so that our faith, hope, and trust can be in you and you alone. Lord, we glorify in every aspect of what we do. Every word that we speak, that it will just bring glory to your name. And we just lift you up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday.